I learned to be very suspicious or very skeptical of appeals to common sense and what is obvious. Let's put it that way. Because I learned that a tremendous amount of common sense is actually uh, just cultural. Hello, Internet, and welcome to another episode of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning novelist, a best-selling humorist, and at the absolute apex, the bleeding edge of the Dunning-Kruger curve. You can look that one up for yourself. Um, this is my show where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things. Um, the main reason being... It's easy to think of the world as a place where nobody ever change their, changes their minds, um, where people just yell at each other all day about their stupid opinions and never think deeply about them. Um, that's not true, though. Um, on this episode, I had someone on who has changed his mind about one of the most polarized things I can think of, um, and that would be the gun control debate. Um this is uh, someone I've wanted to have on the show for a long time. I've known him online for a number of years, never spoken to him before this. Um, but he is a very cool guy. His name is Ian Bars. He is a British expatriate currently living in Atlantic, Iowa. Um, yes, there's a city in Iowa named Atlantic. I have no idea why. Um, you can figure that out for yourself. It's it's kind of, um, I think it's halfway in between Des Moines and Council Bluffs, something like that. Anyway, um, Ian grew up in England, um, kind of absorbed the love of gun control they have there, eventually realized he was going to marry a girl from Iowa and end up moving there and had to think deeply about the American approach to um, guns, which is uh give everybody one and just have everybody shoot at each other and hope for the best right i think that's how we do things here um and he had he so he has a really interesting story um i don't think i necessarily agree with his conclusions but he is much smarter than i am and he was a delight to have on the show so i really hope you enjoy my talk with ian i'm going to go ahead and flip you over there and i will see you on the other side Right, welcome to episode 21 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and this is my show where I interview people who have changed their minds about big things. Um, there is a, an idea in modern pop psychology that people don't change their minds, like, ever. Um, it's not entirely true. <laughs> it might be a little bit true. Not entirely true. People do change their minds. I want to know why. So this is my podcast. It's about, you know, like 5% research project, 95% therapy for me. Um, I'm sitting here with one of my favorite British, British expatriates, Mr. Ian Bars. Ian, welcome to the show. Good to be here. <laughs> yeah, um, Ian is... As I said, raised in merry old England, currently resides in western Iowa, 
um works as what an undertaker <laughs> I, I i'm not a licensed funeral director i work for a funeral home his most um high profile public presence is as a regular commentator on a talk show on a local station there in atlantic iowa uh faith works live on 99.3 the truth so if you're in the if you're in Iowa, which I mean, actually, we all know nobody lives in Iowa. Based, but... based out of Des Moines, it's a big city. Okay. Big city. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> okay, so if you're in the Des Moines area, which some people I know are, my brother lives in the Des Moines area. Um, if you live there, you can hear Ian on Faith Works Live every week. What time is that, Ian? Every Wednesday at four o'clock. Every Wednesday at four o'clock. So there you go. Um, what we're going to talk about today is. Gun control. Um, now, you were telling me that you were originally sympathetic to most gun control measures and now have christened yourself a gun nut. <laughs> what I actually Not really, though. Specifically was, I, I don't particularly like that term, <laughs> but I can live with it. If you have but now you're, you, would, you would call yourself a gun rights advocate. Or at least yes. a, gun, a believer in gun rights. Yes. Um, which I, being a knee-jerk leftist sort, I can say I don't have, I don't naturally feel a lot of sympathy <laughs> for that view, but I, I'd say I'm probably persuadable, um, at least in pragmatic terms. So um, we'll see if you persuade me <laughs> in the course of this conversation. Um but um, yeah, so why don't we um, talk about you first? Born and raised mainly in England, but you, you've always been something of a conservative, yes? <laughs> um, I mean, I've considered myself a, a small C conservative since, since I was in college, which you know, did not make me particularly normal in college in Britain. <laughs> um, well, but as I was saying, uh, you know, conservative in Britain means something significantly different from conservative in, in the US. The, the entire political spectrum, as it were, is in a different place. Um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, British conservatism and American conservatism are very different animals um, and not just in the sense of, oh, they're... British conservatives are more to the left. Like it's, it's not there. Yeah. There's not a basically on on different planets. (laughs) Yeah. There's not a one-on-one map. I mean, you can say that the whole political spectrum is further to the left in Britain and that would be true, but it's also a bit misleading because, you know, it's, it's not a sort of just a parallel shifted to the left, as you say, it's just, it's a different, a different culture and a different country with different issues and different emphases. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always deeply, deeply um, suspicious of anyone who genuinely believes all political views can be mapped along a one dimensional line. (laughs) I mean, if if there was ever a point where a simple left, right scale made sense, it, it hasn't for a very, very long time. No, I I, I agree too. I mean, honestly, you know, four axes like the classic, you know, political spectrum quiz is slightly more helpful, but still not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You need at least three, four, or five axes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, why don't we why don't we start there though? Um, I, I don't know if you want to if you want to start in your college years or where, wherever it's convenient for you. Why don't we um, talk about kind of what your political views were um, back yeah. in your English days? Um, I mean, 
Yeah, like I said, in Britain, I called myself a, a small C conservative. Um, I guess I am. <laughs> I think I'm conservative by temperament. I'm not going to deny that. I, uh, <laughs> I'm suspicious of rapid change and suspicious of um, utopians, um, of anyone who thinks <laughs> that they can create heaven on earth with the right plan. Um, yeah. Which also, I think, actually, in one sense, is, is one of the differences between British conservatism and American conservatism. British conservatism has always actually taken a certain pride in, in, um, in being very pragmatic, mm -hmm. on not being rigid in principles. It's, it's considered it more, more conservative to be pragmatic. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, in one sense, going all the way back to Burke, um, you can see that tendency. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I I voted conservative the couple of times I voted in Britain. Um, I was unfortunately of the of the age where I, you know, I actually didn't get to vote till I was like uh, 22 or something because I was you know, a few months under at an election. And then I couldn't vote till the next general election, which are five years apart in Britain under normal <laughs> circumstances. So. I, and yeah. then I came over to the U.S. As a, at age 26. So I think I actually only voted in two British general elections in my life. Mm -hmm. um, I, I voted conservative, but I never joined the conservative party. I, I, I called myself a small C conservative in part to make clear that I wasn't a, you know, fervent supporter of the British conservative <laughs> party. Um, I had political opinions I mean, I, I guess in one sense, I've been a political animal since I was, yeah, probably in college. Although I've always been more of a issues person than a than a party politics person. Do you want to go into um, a bit deeper into what you would say the difference is between being a, a small C conservative versus a supporter of the conservative party? Um, honestly... It was more that I simply was not willing to align myself with with that party or any other party in Britain. <laughs> sure, sure. Um I you know, I I have never yet found a political party uh that I would say I supported more than maybe sixty five to seventy percent <laughs> of the most of their manifesto and didn't have a fairly strong disagreements with uh at least five to ten percent of it. Um, sure, I'm just too idiosyncratic, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was um, someone who quit the Democratic Party in disgust after the 2016 election. I can sympathize. Um, so, why don't we talk about the, um, you know, the the gun thing? Um, I know that you know the British approach to. Firearms is obviously very different from the American approach. Um, so where were you at with guns back well, in your 20s then? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I would say, honestly, I was basically a pretty, my view was pretty much the typical British middle class. Um, sure. I wasn't, I've never been sort of fervently anti-gun. I've never been a sort of gun control crusader. Um <laughs> in Britain or America. Um, I grew up in the countryside in small villages in the south of England. So I 
I knew people, you know, I knew farmers who owned shotguns to shoot rabbits and, you know, pest control. Um, We had one family in our church, I think, who hunted in the American sense, who hunted deer, uh, Mm -hmm. which I thought was wildly exotic as a teenager. Um, (laughs) You know, I... I, Is there there a lot less hunting then in in Britain? Yeah, Yeah, it's, uh, it's... The... It's one of those things where the cultural stereotype is almost 180 degrees different in the Midwest, <laughs> at least, or in much of America. I think the stereotype of a of a hunter is a redneck. Uh-huh. Written the stereotype of anyone who hunts is upper class. Oh yeah, sure. It's, uh, sure. Yeah, it's, it's what Toffs. Yeah, I have this this image in my head of the 19th century aristocrat off Absolutely. hunting foxes. Yeah. Now, <laughs> honestly, I can tell you that I've learned both here and there that that stereotype actually isn't accurate in either country. Um, quite honestly, huh. hunting is becoming more and more, I, I mean, not saying there aren't a lot of rednecks who hunt, but the sure. people who really, really seriously hunt over here are the doctors and lawyers because they're the ones who have the time and the money to do it. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. Take time off work and go hunting for the whole of deer season or something. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I wish I could hunt every day of deer season, but I have to earn a living. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and equally in Britain, actually, um, you know, there, there are people, I knew guys who work construction and hunted deer, but that's mm-hmm. not the stereotype. You know, that's not the mm-hmm. cultural stereotype. Um, but yeah, far less people do. My view was basically, uh, yeah, the typical sort of British non, you know, semi-urban, uh, not sort of old-fashioned country view, which is, I guess it's okay for people who really want to, to, you know, own shotguns and rifles for deer stalking, but, you know, it, it's just obviously common sense to have strict controls on what kind of guns can be owned and uh you know have strict regulations about who can own them and uh, how many they can own and obviously there's no real reason to you know self-defense is not an adequate reason for owning a gun that's just sort of a recipe for an arms race in in guns and the whole idea of a the, the right to bear arms is basically some sort of weird, archaic American thing left over because they had a revolution 200 years ago. And, you know, we're more sensible than that. I mean, I would say I'm, I'm I would say that is probably what well over 90 percent of Britain uh, believes about gun control, if it, if it boils down to it. Yeah, I'm curious now because. <laughs> I want to know, are there, um, is there a lot of talk over there about the American approach to, to gun control? Like, Um, I mean, is is there a lot of standard stick to beat Americans with (laughs) in the barrel of things to be mindlessly anti-American about now I'm showing my prejudices. Um, (laughs) there is a lot of, in my opinion now, as someone who's lived in both countries, very uh, not particularly actually well-informed anti-American stereotypes in Western Europe generally. I mean, I'm not like all stereotypes. They have a basis in some truth, but they're not (laughs) very helpful a lot of the time. And yeah, one of them is that basically America is filled with crazy gun nuts who are just in love with lethal weaponry and 
Yeah. Basically, basically the, the standard view of American attitudes towards guns in the UK is that Americans are all crazy. Well, and, I mean, uh, in fairness, we do have people pushing their way into state capitals strapped with AR-15s right now. <laughs> so maybe there's some truth to that. Um, it is interesting, though, to me that, you know, Americans have this idea of, oh, Europe's this socialist hellhole where nobody can nobody can have a weapon to protect themselves when you're you know obviously in your experience you knew a lot of people who managed to own guns despite Uh, british gun laws qualification (laughs) sure Uh, first of all europe saying that europe is possibly even more annoying to someone who comes from (laughs) europe than than, than i now get annoyed about say people saying America, as if the United <laughs> States is basically, you know, one nation that where everything is the same everywhere. You know, Denmark sure. and Greece are, and Britain are remarkably different countries, and they also have Absolutely. quite considerably different gun laws and attitudes towards guns. Right. Um, you're, you're hitting my uh, my sore spots, which are. <laughs> <laughs> really unhelpful stereotypes between Britain and Europe going both ways. Um, right. But but to get back to what you specifically said, it is extremely hard to have a gun for self-defense in Britain. Okay. It's illegal. Okay. Sure. You're not a, it's that is not a one of the valid reasons for owning a gun. Um during my lifetime um in 96 97 after the Dunblane massacre, the British government effectively banned almost all handguns. So handguns are virtually illegal in Britain, hmm. um, with very limited exceptions. Um, and if you do own a shotgun or a rifle, it has to be stored locked up, and the ammunition has to be stored in a separate locked container. So basically, okay. you, you cannot own a gun for defense in the way that Americans would think of that sure. um, at sure. all. Um, now, again, that's that's not true across Europe. And I think... One of the things that really actually makes discussing gun control difficult and not work well between Brits and Americans, you know, Brits, Britain and America are the two you know, largest English-speaking nations. And right. we tend to know more about our, the politics and the culture, vice versa, than, do, than either do about, say, you know, Greece or Denmark or sure. South Korea or wherever. But when it comes to gun control, they are like the opposite ends of the spectrum. But they Mm -hmm. don't realize that. Like people in Britain think that all of Europe has sensible gun laws just like ours and Americans are crazy. The reality (laughs) is it's far, far easier, for instance, to own a handgun in um, Germany or Austria. The Czech Republic has um, what would in American terms be a concealed carry permit system where like Something like ten percent of the population has a carry permit. May, hmm. may I may be remembering that stat wrong, but you know, in Poland you can own fully automatic machine guns. You know, I mean, basically, <laughs> this this idea that there's Britain and America, and on the other hand, Americans think that there's America, and then the whole of the rest of the world is like Britain, where you quote, and I, I've heard this from actually, I've heard this from American gun rights advocates so many times. You can't own a gun in Britain. That's not true. It's way more regulated than the United States, but it's not true that you can't own a gun in Britain. I mean, like three million people in Britain or something have shotgun licenses. 
yeah, sure. it's just a very, very different system. The fact is, across the world, there is a huge spectrum of approaches to gun right. control. And there is, you know, every kind of variation you can think of, basically. Right. This uh, generally pro-gun control view, um, is this something you would say you just kind of mindlessly absorbed from the culture? More or, or less. This, yeah. yeah. It was just, yeah. you know, what, like I said, it's what the vast majority of Britain believes. I mean, basically, <clears throat> strict gun control works. That's why we have a very low murder rate, which Britain does. It has... Mm -hmm for a major nation, one of the world's lowest murder rates, you know, and that's the reason for the difference between Britain, you know, the, the US has a murder rate four or five times ours, and that's because of all their guns. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. obvious QED. Um, <laughs> I mean, I remember I mentioned that the UK government um, massively restricted handguns in the late 90s, um, following a mass shooting in Scotland. Um, and I remember that discussing that with my high school class at the time, you know, it was just, it was all in the news, you know, because mm. um, it all happened quite quickly. Um, and basically we were all in agreement that this was a, you know, entirely sensible with the exception of one girl in my class who, uh, whose parents had actually bought her a, 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 a Browning high power semi-automatic as a 16th birthday present or something. Mm. Uh, to defend herself. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember specifically arguing with her, basically, that there was no reason for anyone in a modern society to own a handgun for anything except, you know, target shooting. And for target shooting, you didn't need anything bigger than a twenty-two, and, you know, mm -hmm. you could keep it at the gun club or something. So basically, there's no reason for anyone to own large caliber handguns at all. So it just makes sense to ban them. So was the, um, I mean, was the handgun ban accomplished with very little opposition then in Britain? I mean, I, I, I confess I don't know a whole lot about British politics. So. Yes, because <laughs> basically there weren't all that many people who owned handguns particularly already um, mm -hmm. because of previous gun control legislation that had made it awkward and expensive to do so. So the number of people, there weren't all that many people who owned handguns and they didn't they didn't really kind of have a political demographic to kick up a fuss i mean there, there was some protests some of the sort of country country sports organizations and the the, the sport shooting organizations protested but public opinion was overwhelmingly in favor uh, sure all right so um you changed your mind was this um after you came to america then or um, actually, no. Um, what happened was um, you know, I went to college. Um, I met my now wife. Um, I guess I was in my final year of college, I guess. Uh, she was an American visiting Britain um, sure. and we became friends and eventually, several years later, started dating and, and got engaged. I went to grad school kind of in, in during that time. But when we got engaged and we were kind of discussing, you know, which which direction we'd go, which side of the pond we'd end up on, mm. um, and we were leaning towards me coming over here for a bunch of different reasons. But um, I think I mentioned earlier, one of the things that has always interested me is kind of the differences between cultures. 
Um, You know, why why do cultures come to such fundamentally different kind of basic beliefs about things? Um, And I knew, as as anyone does, that the attitude towards guns was is one of the biggest sort of cultural chasms between Britain and America, two countries Mm -hmm. that share a lot of history and that, you know, have. Uh, a lot of in common in terms of their history and their law and cultural crossover and so on. But on this particular issue, you know, they're the opposite ends of the scale culturally and legally. And that, that just intrigued me. I knew I didn't know a huge amount about Atlantic Iowa where I live now. Um, but I knew that I knew there would be a lot more people around me who owned guns and shot because it's the Midwest of the USA. And so I decided to start um, investigating it, basically. Um, I'm mm-hmm. kind of a, I'm a knowledge junkie. I'm a quiz show geek, uh, literally. <laughs> actually, I, I was, uh, my college team was on TV uh, on a cool. British show. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person who, when I get interested in something, I research it. Um, sure. So I just started digging. And I kept digging. And I, honestly, for about 18 months of my life, so the, the year before I moved to the US and the first six months or so after I came over here, um, gun control, gun rights, the laws involving guns, self-defense, the right to bear arms, the philosophy of self-defense, the morality of self-defense, all of these intertwined issues that was kind of my major sort of you know amateur research interest and i i probably read thousands of pages uh, on (laughs) the subject um mostly online i i read a few books but mostly online Mm. and uh, i tried very hard to sort of read broadly i did read you know some angry gun rights bloggers from the USA. But I also read most of the website of, you know, the the Brady Center for Gun Control, um, Mm. the Gun Control Network in Britain. Um, I read uh, gun rights advocacy advocacy groups from Switzerland and the Philippines and India. Hmm. Um, I read about the history of uh, the right to bear arms in uh, common law. I I, I mean, I dug deep, basically. Sure. and at the end of that time, uh, I wouldn't say I was a, a raving gun nut, but my <laughs> position had switched. You know, I, I had moved from nearer to one end of the spectrum to definitely on the other end of the spectrum, hmm. of the other side of the spectrum, I should say. Yeah. Um, can you talk about maybe some of the most persuasive ideas or facts or whatever you encountered like what what was it that really honestly i think the biggest thing is basically the gun control argument is very simple Mm -hmm. it's very straightforward like i said the vast majority of people in britain and obviously many americans too believe it it's basically more guns equals more crime more gun crime if you have more guns and less legislate, less restriction and legislation controlling guns, you will have more people killed with guns. Therefore, you should have less guns and more restrictive legislation. Mm-hmm. It's very straightforward. 
And it's very easy to prove at a very, very surface level. Like, you know, if mm. you look at Britain, if you take Britain and the US and you take a very surface, what are gun control laws in Britain? What is the homicide rate? What are gun control laws in America? What is the homicide rate? Case closed. Mm. <laughs> the problem is the moment you expand your view from and basically the last, say, 30 or 40 years in those two countries, um, I just found that argument completely fell apart, basically. Hmm. Or I should say it becomes at best a very, very weak case that is true in certain circumstances rather than like an absolutely self-evident you know, end of the argument. How could you be so crazy as to contradict that? Hmm. So once you look at both... Uh, a global picture, you know, once you start looking at 20 or 30 different countries rather than, say, two or three carefully mm -hmm. selected, um, or once you start looking at history over, say, 100 or 200 years rather than the last, you know, since the 1980s or something, then those correlations just, the correlation just disappears as something that you can be very confident in. So there was that. And then, and I mean, this, I think maybe where my, the other thing I think was in you, it was, and this may be where my sort of uh, small C instinctive, small C conservative temperament comes in, but realizing actually in Britain, the perception is that the right to bear arms you know, in the United States constitution is some weird American innovation that happened because of the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. The reality is basically 100%, 180 degrees opposite to that. The reality is, like most of the rights in the United States Bill of Rights, the right to bear arms in the Second Amendment is a restated in stronger terms and without all the qualifications version of a right that had long existed in British common law and that the U.S. founding fathers wanted to preserve. Sure. So it's gun control, honestly, is the innovation. The right to bear arms actually is has a long, long history in Anglo-American common law going well, well back, you know, to the late Middle Ages, if not earlier. Mm -hmm. And until basically three generations ago, you could have found significant numbers of people within politics whose attitude to it would have been very much the same as that of your know, American gun rights advocates. I mean, basically in Britain, actually, gun control was getting less and less through the 19th century. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, the right to bear arms in English law, which is <laughs> in the English Bill of Rights of 1689, the king's hmm. subjects shall have the right to bear arms uh, for their own defense and for the defense of the realm. Mm -hmm. And that was basically being broadened uh, down through the 19th century mm. until shortly after World War, the First World War, when basically they slammed the brakes on and did a legal 180. Um, Interesting. Largely because they were afraid of a communist revolution. It wasn't actually, it wasn't anything to do with violent crime or the murder rate. Sure. Uh, it was almost entirely political because they were afraid of um, common people with rifles, especially <laughs> in the immediate aftermath of, of uh, World War One. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I know if you um, dig into the history of gun control, you often find things that are not particularly pretty. <laughs> but in, honestly, in the U, in the yeah. U.S., I know there's kind of a strong racist component oh, to that. One hundred percent. Yes, I mean yeah. absolutely. Um, yeah, some of the laws that were passed in the late nineteenth century um, are basically very, very, very obviously designed to ensure that poor people can't own guns, but but anyone with a little bit of money can. Um, sure. So, yeah, I mean, it just basically the more I dug, the more the simplistic kind of answers fell apart. And then I started looking at the philosophy and the morality, and that sort of challenged my personal beliefs about um, – self-defense and whether the right to bear arms had any kind of moral component connected to the right to self-defense. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just got interesting. <laughs> hmm. I want to talk about that maybe a little bit um, because obviously there is a distinction between the right to bear arms and the right to self-defense. Um, I think the right to self-defense, and I mean, this is where I would differ, I guess, with the kind of hardest core of uh, American gun nuts. I always slightly mm -hmm. roll my eyes when I hear people saying they have a God-given right to bear arms. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a massive stretch, frankly. <laughs> As a conservative Christian, uh, again, small c conservative, theologically, I think that's a massive stretch from anything you can find in Scripture. Sure. Um, however... The church has long, long considered, I mean, basically, honestly, pretty much in unquestioned for most of, of church history, that self-defense was a natural right. Sure. Um, I mean, there's, there's been, I, I may be exaggerating, there, there's, been, there's been a tension in Christian history between pacifism and uh, self-defense, both personal mm -hmm. and, you know, communal and national. Right. But from the early middle ages onwards there was more of a consensus that self-defense was a natural right sure um, you know that you that you have the right to to use force to defend yourself against force right so the right to the right to bear arms comes from that but it's not right yeah you know, it's not identical to it but but where it comes from it is if you have the right to defend yourself do you not have the right to uh own and use tools to defend yourself. Sure. Um, and I mean, that's if you go back to like Blackstone, the great English lawyer of the 18th century, um, uh, he said that the right to uh, bear arms, which, as I said, was was actually in the English Bill of Rights, um, was uh, I can't remember the phrase, but he said basically it's it's the legal guarantee of the natural right to self-defense. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I mean, where I got to first initially, as it were, was that I don't think you can derive from the right to self-defense, the right to own an IR-15, you know, or any right. specific weapon ne ne necessarily. But I do think you can say, for instance, that uh, laws that prevent you owning any effective tools of self-defense are bad laws. Um, mm. And I would put, honestly, for instance, British offensive weapons law in that category, which basically says you cannot carry anything that you could effectively use to hurt someone else 
regardless of you know whether they're trying to hurt you. I mean, literally, it's it's illegal to carry pepper spray in Britain. It's hmm. illegal to carry. Basically, actually, if it could be a really effective tool of self-defense, even if it's entirely uh, designed to be non-lethal, it's illegal in Britain. Hmm. Um, and that, I think, is, you know, I always we can debate whether your right to self-defense means you, ha you have an absolute right to an AR-15, but I think it has to imply you have a right to something. Um, right. Otherwise, sure. it, it's a, otherwise, it's a right that... Was it a right that cannot be exercised is a right denied is a phrase from somewhere. You know, I mean, the illustration I've given, I've given sometimes is like, say, one of the rights in the UN Declaration of Human Rights is the right to travel. You know, you can't mm -hmm. lock your country's borders like East Germany or the Soviet Union and say, turn your country into a giant jail. Now, sure. that is pretty obvious to people. But, mm. you know, if the British government and Britain's, you know, an island nation said, of course, you have the right to, to, to leave Britain. We've just banned all commercial, um, you know, closed all commercial ports, banned all commercial flights and banned ownership of private planes and boats. <laughs> the right would be pretty meaningless you know, sure. because the restrictions on something else would have meant that you can't exercise the right. All right. So you find yourself converted on the question of gun laws is at this point, you're still in England. Yes. Um, do you talk to a lot of your uh, English friends and family about this or? <laughs> uh, not a lot. I mean, honestly, I think I knew even then that uh, that would be a hard sell in Britain. <laughs> so countercultural. Sure. Um, I mean, I had some discussions with my parents. I occasionally had some discussions with my, my brothers who disagree with me on almost everything politically, socially, and, and uh, religiously, but <laughs> I dearly love having discussions with. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I realized uh, or found out as I was sort of, you know, researching this is there are significantly more people who disagree with the consensus in Britain um, than you would ever know unless you tried to find out, because basically... Uh, British people don't talk about this because it's so mm -hmm. uh, countercultural. Um, I worked, mm. I worked for several years at uh, like an open air museum in Britain, uh, kind mm. of reconstructed historical buildings, and um, I don't know what it was about that place, but it just it was kind of tucked away in a hollow in the hills, right out in the countryside, and it attracted people who were real country people, insofar mm. as that still exists in Britain. And I remember after I'd been working there six months or more, and this was during this period, I think this was, you know, during the, the year before I came to the States, um, I found out that a couple of the people who worked there uh, owned guns and hunted. Mm -hmm. But I didn't find that out until I'd been working alongside them for six months or more because they didn't talk about it until they'd heard me overheard me saying enough things or had kind of sounded me out in conversation to know basically that my reaction to yeah we bought our 22s out here last night and shot rabbits wouldn't be oh my goodness am i working alongside a potential psychopathic mass murderer <laughs> that's the cultural difference i'm really not exaggerating hmm. there are a significant number of people in the british middle class who would react that way 
to the knowledge that their co-worker was shooting rabbits with a twenty-two rifle. <laughs> so the people who do hunt and own guns in Britain just don't talk about it. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> they keep their heads down, culturally speaking. Why don't you talk about uh, uh, coming to America? Not not the Eddie Murphy movie, but your experience of <laughs> <laughs> coming to America and how how that happened and how that. Um, either changed or, or shape, continued to shape or didn't continue to shape your views on guns? Well, yeah. I, so I I was engaged to my, my now wife. Um, and like I said, we were discussing, you know, which way we should go. And she had spent a lot of time in, in the UK. I had only been over here for one relatively brief visit. Um, mm-hmm. So we thought it would be good for me to get to know her family and her community. Um, plus she had a house here, which is, you know, always a good thing. So yeah, um, summer of 2006, um, I came over here and we got married, uh, a month after I flew in and, um, yeah, I've been here in Atlantic Iowa ever since. (laughs) I mean, in terms of my views on guns, well, I mean, when I came here, we weren't sure whether, um, we would be here long term or whether we would be here for perhaps three or four years and then move back to Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of, when I came here, I had a, I had a, a list, not quite a bucket list, I guess, but you know, I had a list basically. I, I think I had a half a side of paper of things I want to do while I'm in the U S um, things that are basically just far easier and cheaper to do over here than in Britain. Uh, one <laughs> of them was learn to shoot. Because uh-huh. I, I owned a, a pellet gun, an air rifle in Britain, and you know, plinked with it occasionally, but um, I'd never shot a. Like I said, I mean, owning a real gun in Britain involves jumping through a whole bunch of hoops, and you have to be quite determined, basically. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, so when I came here, yeah, I uh, I got to know the friendly local gun nut. We have a neighbor who lives a block away who is. Um, retired military and plex guns um and um he took me out shooting once he took me took me into his gun vault and basically said literally gun vault um (laughs) and and said which of these a hundred and something guns do you want to take out this afternoon (laughs) it was welcome to america (laughs) yeah yeah and so we went out and and uh, I now know in hindsight, probably burned up $200 of ammunition shooting. Wow. Um, yeah, I didn't realize how generous he was being back then because I didn't <laughs> myself. And, didn't, uh, um, uh, and I, I enjoyed, you know, just target shooting and so on. So I eventually... Um, I eventually bought a twenty two pistol and a twenty two rifle and learned to shoot. Um, and then um, I one, one of the other things on the list was go hunting again, because mm. it's just a hundred times easier and less expensive here than in Britain. And so I went out, uh, some friends took me out, you know, pheasant hunting and a friend took me out deer hunting a few seasons and um, possibly to my wife's chagrin, I caught the bug. <laughs> I occasionally joke to friends that, you know, as a 
uh, as a young man in Britain, I used to, you know, read some of the British kind of country magazines that the field and so on, and kind of occasionally dream of being an, an English country gentleman, hunting, shooting, fishing, English country gentleman. <laughs> that's a rich man's sport, whereas um, being a Midwest redneck is far cheaper and <laughs> pretty much the same result, you know, in terms of hunting, <laughs> shooting, fishing. Um, so, yeah, um, in terms of gun, you know, the, the, the thinking about gun rights. So I became a gun owner, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I carried on thinking about it. I, I mean, maybe I should describe, because this is, this is a weird backwards thing to, I think, the way many people think, how I changed my views on self-defense in general and armed self-defense in particular. Sure. I've never been a pacifist. Um, mm-hmm. That's not, and that's not because I haven't uh, ever been exposed or, um, you know, thought about the issue. My one of my grandparents literally uh, went to jail during World War Two for refusing to fight. Hmm. Um, one of my other grandparents fought in both world wars. So, <laughs> um, um, but. When talking about, you know, the big picture of pacifism, I had often said one of my sort of, you know, reasons I'd given for why I can't be a pacifist is, you know, if if your spouse or mother or father or brother or friend was being assaulted in front of you, would it be the right thing to do nothing? Mm-hmm. Or... Would it be the right thing to intervene and to fight their attacker? Sure. And I'd often given that example in the context of big picture pacifism, you know, mm-hmm. in countries and, you know, should the US and Britain have stood, stood aside while you know, Hitler conquered all of Europe, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I realized one day I just had this kind of revelation kind of, it dawned on me that I'd never actually, that I'd used that example a thousand times and never really actually applied it to myself, the actual example. What would I actually do if someone attacked my wife or my kids? Because kids Mm -hmm. came along pretty quickly after we got married. Sure. Would I defend them and how would I defend them? And was I prepared to defend them? And what would Mm. I use to defend them? Um, and I mean, I, I think getting married and having a kid sort of made that, you know, when you're a young man in your 20s, you kind of think you're immortal and and, <laughs> and believe that if you're reasonably fit and like me had done a little bit of martial arts or whatever, you probably think, you know, oh, I could somehow fight off anyone, you know, um, <laughs> but you realize you can't, you know, use your Kung Fu if you've got a one-year-old baby in your arms. Right. Um, you realize there are very, very real limits to physical self-defense. Um, yeah. And so I started thinking about that and I, yeah, I bought a, bought a handgun for, for self-defense. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, having being married and having kids, I think, does make a big difference to how you think about those things, right? Because it's like, if it's just you, it's like, well, it's easy to be a pacifist, right? Like, it's it's right. easy to say, you know, I would let someone beat me up to whatever, contribute peace to the world or whatever. But, you know, when, when you're 
child is in danger, your wife is in danger, it's a whole different calculus. It's like, well, I've made a promise to protect this individual. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know? it's one thing to say, I choose to be injured or die rather than right. hurt someone else. Right. Do I have the right to take that decision for someone else? Do I have right. the right to say my child is going to die because I don't want to get my hands dirty morally? Or, or the random stranger I see being beaten to pulp, to a pulp. I mean, when I was in high school, I mean, this is stuck in my memory. I didn't, it wasn't me personally, but some people in my class in high school were in the wrong place at the wrong time and watched someone be kicked unto unconsciousness on a railroad station platform. Wow. I mean, they were three 16-year-old girls, so I do not think they should have intervened, probably. <laughs> they probably mm -hmm. did the right thing by calling the police and staying back. But, you know, um, yeah, <laughs> as an adult man, would it have been right for me just to have stood back? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you want to get into the nitty-gritty of um, uh, gun control in the U.S. Um, I... I'm happy to. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I realize I, I can tell you one thing that I think sure. that my you talked about how my views changed. So my views changed. One of the weird things about moving from Britain to the US, and I think I've seen this with friends who've done it the other way around, too, mm -hmm. is that, you know, there isn't that much initial culture shock. Mm -hmm. because, you know, we speak the same language. We're somewhat yeah. familiar with each other's cultures. You know, I mean, you know, Brits watch endless amounts of American TV and obviously, you know, half the, probably more than half the English-speaking, you know, movies in the world are <laughs> filmed in the U.S., <laughs> filmed sure. in the U.S. Um, so, you know, there isn't a kind of, there isn't the automatic culture shock that you get if you're in a country where, you're having to translate the language in your head all the time that you're outside mm -hmm. your own house. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a much more, it sneaks up on you. Um, I found it was about after about 18 months in the US that culture shock hit me really hard. And one of the things that hit me was when I realized how much my opinions had changed on multiple things, but one of them was guns. Mm -hmm. Basically, I sort of found myself stepping outside myself and going, what would me two years ago have thought about <laughs> me now? Sure. And, and having some really quite profound kind of, yeah, culture shock. I would issue that warning to any uh, Americans who think it would be so romantic and amazing to live in Britain. Um, I mean, there's <laughs> good things about living in Britain, don't get me wrong. But there are, it's the subtle differences that that will get you. And I have known Americans who actually found living in Britain very hard after hmm. a year or two. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, for those of us who learned everything we know about Britain from JK Rowling and Neil uh, Gaiman and CS Lewis, <laughs> exactly like that. there's a bit more to it. Than exactly that, actually. Like that. Um, <laughs> for me, this really was very much um, a logic thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it, I can honestly, I mean, I'm not saying I'm immune to where I am and, you know, the, the atmosphere around me, 
But I honestly had kind of moved three quarters of as far as I had before I came to the US mm-hmm. um, as sure. a result of, yeah, researching it. Um, and that, I think that's one of the things that frustrates me about the gun control debate in the US. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) There's so little, uh, you know, I mean, I'm afraid 90 plus percent of the people kind of grow up in one position or another and frankly never really do examine it. Well, and I've said this before elsewhere, but I, I do feel strongly that the gun debate in the U.S., to the extent it exists, is very, very, very little of it is actually about guns and the policy regarding guns. And like, well, not something like 90 percent of it is like these, you know, different subcultures within the U.S. just kind of exercising their mutual loathings for each other. In the public it's square, you know? <laughs> part of the political culture wars, and that's right. really bad. And it really, I think, it really prevents intelligent discussion most often. Um, sure. Uh, whenever I get involved in these debates, whether it's face to face or online, I try, not always successfully, to make both sides actually see the other sides. I've written a few things. At one point long ago, I had a blog, um, and some of the things I put on that were attempts basically to try and explain the two sides to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think so often, yeah, we're just talking past each other, and there's mm-hmm. so much suspicion. Both sides assume the worst of the other's motives. They're right. not willing to actually believe that the other side are motivated by what they say they're motivated by. And that's just... <laughs> It's just completely destructive in terms of actually having a, a sane debate. I want to ask you this, because um, I feel like I, I have like a thousand like half-formed questions in my head, and I'm trying to pick one, because um, <laughs> I have so many questions um, to, about, about the, the gun debate, you know, especially for someone who's got kind of a more um, global perspective on it. Um, let me put it this way. I don't think it's terribly controversial to say we have a problem in this country with mass shootings. Like they seem to be significantly more common here than in a lot of parts of the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I get the argument to an, to an extent. I, I, I get the argument that, you know, whatever, proposed gun control uh, laws there are on the table won't fix that. Um, I'm wondering if there is a solution there. Like, is it, is it entirely a cultural problem? I, um, I do honestly think that I don't think that guns, you know, the number of guns or, is completely irrelevant to gun violence. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, if you look globally, countries with more guns do tend to have more 
gun violence. But it's not mm. a sort of absolute one-on-one, you know, this country has this many guns per capita, therefore its murder rate will be this. It's it's right. way, way, you know, it, it, it is a factor, but it's only one of very many factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I have researched it, unfortunately, unfortunately in from the sense of doing anything about it, mm-hmm. I really, the, the predominant... Uh, factor is cultural um Mm -hmm. for gun violence overall and for mass shootings um i mean take britain and america for instance um the simple fact is for a hundred years britain has had a quite low homicide rate and the usa Mm -hmm. has had a quite high one and a hundred years of increasingly uh strict gun control in britain hasn't actually lowered that much. In mm. fact, the the murder rate in Britain has basically the the homicide rate in Britain has been between like one point one and one point seven for the entirety of the twentieth century and to to the current day, regard mm. entirely regardless of the different. At the beginning of that period, the the UK Britain had less gun laws than the US has now. When my grandparents were born, you could walk into any gun shop in Britain, buy any gun you had the money for, and walk out with it mm-hmm. if you were an adult. You know? um, yeah. And the murder rate was, I don't remember exactly, but certainly not higher than it is now. I think sure. slightly lower. At the same time, the murder rate in America at the same time was about eight times higher. Mm-hmm. Now the murder rate in Britain is slightly higher than it was now, and the murder rate in America is about uh, three and a half times higher. Mm-hmm. But it's also varied. It's also lower than it was 30 years ago in the U.S. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. uh, In the U.S., the homicide rate has bounced up and down, basically, over the last 100 years. And it, you know the factors do not appear to have anything to do with gun legislation at all. Um, as far as I can tell, I, the the problem with the mass shooting thing specifically is, unfortunately, it is the hardest kind of gun crime to prevent. Sure, because it is incredibly hard to stop someone who doesn't care if they live or die. Mm-hmm. And the vast vast majority of mass shooters are you know, murder suicides. Basically, mm-hmm. they either kill themselves or they go on till they're shot, knowing they're going to be shot. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, Britain has had three mass shootings in my lifetime, I think. And after after the first two, they passed sweeping gun control legislation. And then 10 or 15 years later, they had another one. And then they passed some more sweeping gun legislation. And 10 or 15 years later, they had another one. So, yes, (laughs) I mean, that that is tiny compared to the U.S., but actually, Switzerland, where literally every, one in three houses has a fully automatic military weapon because they actually have a genuine militia army, mm-hmm. and they have had, I think, two mass shootings in the last 50 years. Hmm. Uh, literally, target shooting is the most popular sport in Switzerland. Hmm. Literally. It is the, the most popular sport, and yet they have a... Their murder rate is slightly above the European average, but they've had almost, yeah, I think two mass shootings in, in half a century. Um, so it's, 
Yeah, it's it's not as simple as the availability of guns. I do think that the relative ease of getting guns in the US is a factor in mass shootings. I I agree, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the kind of guns you can get probably has made some mass shootings worse. Although the simple fact is if you have a gun and the people around you don't, you're going to kill a lot of people. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the tragic reality. Um, the last mass shooting in Britain, 12 people were killed with a 22 rifle and a double barreled shotgun. Hmm. So, you know, you, you're not going to prevent mass killings by banning quotes, assault weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, I think what, again, what frustrates me about the political debate is I honestly feel like the things that might make a difference and that you might be able to pass are never happen because the problem with the gun control lobby in the United States is they don't actually take their opponents seriously. Hmm. And what I mean by that is it goes back to what I was saying a while back about, you know, attributing malice to the other people, not, not actually being able to believe that the people on the other side actually believe what they say they mean. Sure. They don't take seriously. They, they, and it's partly, it's this, and I, this is the thing. I understand this because I've been here. I, it's mm-hmm. an alien concept to me too. But they don't actually understand that when the American, when Americans talk about the right to bear arms, they actually really genuinely believe it's a fundamental civic right. You're on the same level as the right to vote or the right sure. to, you know, the religious liberty or the right to, you know, hold political opinions freely, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. freedom from arbitrary arrest, all those classical (laughs) rights that we think as part and parcel of being a free country and not a dictatorship. Sure. Americans who believe in the right to bear arms really genuinely believe that the right to bear arms is one of those rights. And what I mean by that, yeah, there are some people who think the right to be armed should be completely unlimited. I mean, this is America. You can find someone who believes anything <laughs> if you look hard. You know, but the vast majority of gun owners and even of people who would call themselves, you know, Second Amendment advocates or something, do not actually believe that any kind of, you know, restriction on the right to bear any weapons whatsoever in any circumstances for absolutely anyone, no matter who they are or what they've done, is unconstitutional and, and, and immoral, but they do, they're going to start with the presumption, the presumption basically that you have to prove, you have to make a really, really, really good case for why we need a restriction. They're basically mm. going to respond in the same way that say the ACLU responds to restrictions on freedom of speech. Sure. You know, their automatic response is going to be, prove this is actually going is necessary and worthwhile and is absolutely absolutely necessary whereas the other side is basically coming from it from the perspective that owning weapons is a privilege and you should have to prove that you're fit to do so and i mean just the the whole 
the two sides so often are talking past each other. And I, I, even in the time I have been here, I have seen the gun rights kind of community, if you if you want to call it that, get more hard line, mm-hmm. uh, more kind of not one inch. And yes, there are a hundred percent people who want, who are making money out of you know over the top heated rhetoric. Um, mm-hmm. But equally, to put it really bluntly a British style or even a German style and probably a Canadian style gun control regime is not going to happen in the United States in the next 20 to 30 years. It's not going to happen. And when you try and make it happen, you prevent actual small scale workable gun law or weapons law reform that might be helpful because the other side just slams up the barriers and assumes that you are trying to do things that they find utterly unacceptable. Or or if you want it in brutally pragmatic terms, you are not going to get gun control reform in the United States without at least some gun owners on board. It's not Mm going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, And turning this into a sort of, yeah, political culture war where basically all the other side are just evil merchants of death atavistic thugs in love with their guns who just you know wake up every morning dreaming of murdering people because they love guns is it's a recipe it's a good vote winner for certain constituencies but it's no way to ever ever actually change anything and and, i mean on the other side you know i mean it's i'm not saying again i'm not saying it's all one-sided you know Mm -hmm. unfortunately you have an awful lot of people in our political system gun rights and gun control are both surefire vote winners uh, Mm -hmm. for our two Mm -hmm. major political parties I mean, part of the problem is that there is a cultural chasm. I mean, it's become one of these uh, things where it's not 100% true, but a large number of the people who support gun rights don't have the experiences that would enable them to really be able to understand or empathize with the people who uh, support gun control Sure. And vice versa, because, our, mm. you know, we're, you talked about you mentioned subcultures, you know, we're becoming there's becoming so little overlap between different subcultures in our in our culture. Um, I mean, the, the big divide on gun control, obviously, is urban rural, um, like all these mm. things. That's a generalization. You can find, you know, gun nuts in the city and you can find gun control advocates in the countryside. But, um, you know, it that's a general trend and it's yeah because where i live out here in small town iowa gun control makes no sense at all frankly Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um we've had maybe one murder in the last 40 years in this town (laughs) maybe not sure Mm -hmm. one or two accidental shootings maybe Mm -hmm. um I think, I mean, I work at a funeral home, so, you know, I hear about, <laughs> we've had some gun suicides. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't know. I think my state runs at 40 something percent of households uh, own a gun. I would guess mm-hmm. where I am, it's probably 50 to 60 percent. 
um, that you know those aren't all people who are keen shooters or hunters but yeah I mean mm-hmm. and it's just even if you don't grow up even if you don't use a gun regularly in rural that's my son <laughs> um, regularly you know you probably probably shot at a friend's farm as a kid or something you know shot tin cans with a 22 you probably got invited <laughs> out on the opening day of pheasant season once even if you never did it again or something you know everyone knows people everyone knows gun owners and everyone knows uh, responsible gun use in a way that isn't remotely unusual or alarming mm-hmm. um, and it's just I mean, and I think, I mean, sometimes, sometimes that's one of those culture shock things that still gets me, actually, is just how uh, unsurprised I am to that, you know, my church does men's get togethers occasionally and they set up, you know, a clay thrower and we do a trap shoot and put out targets and, you know, half the guys go to the back of their cars or their pickups and pull out at least one gun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I normally bring at least a couple of mine. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that would have been completely unthinkable to me to, uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, sure. But, you know, I, I don't know anyone who's been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm aware that there are places in America where everyone knows someone or knows someone who knows someone who's been affected by gun violence yeah mm. um and it's just yeah there's just there's not a lot of um i think it's really tragic that the issue has become politicized mm-hmm. so and and partisan politicized you know mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. because it means that people on both sides are inclined to just shut down and assume it's just those those terrible people in the other party who think differently from me basically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah i mean the urban rural divide is i mean it's it's a huge problem in american politics right now to be sure um you know because we've got we've got these two groups of people who not only don't understand each other but have no desire to understand each other um and I don't know how you keep a country like that together. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you, you've probably interacted enough with me online that you know that I'm, uh, yeah, if you want me to get into pro- pro- predicting the future, it's going to get very, <laughs> very bleak and dark. No, I, I do. I, I, I fear the answer to that question, Luke, honestly. Yeah. I, I feel like America is coming apart at the seams. Yeah. Um, but it's not going to be helped by... Turning the people in the other subcultures into you know, caricatures. Yeah, um, sure. Well, and that, I mean that's the goal. At least, at least one of the goals of this podcast is to get people talking about stuff like that. Um, you know, but I don't. I don't know how much a, a podcast like this that maybe reaches a thousand people, if that. You know, I don't know how much difference that something like this can make. Um, I think, I mean, if there is one thing I would try and try and say, well, sorry, rampaging three-year-old. No problem. Um, 
Sorry, just one moment. If there was one thing I would try and say, it is to try and, about this issue, it is to try and help people understand that the people on the other side of it do have reasons for what they believe. Mm -hmm. That it's not just a sort of, you know, that they're not just and and to listen to those reasons and not just assume that um, that they they're really motivated by some secret evil, you know, and and I mean both sides do this. I mean, mm. I, I've said this. I, I wrote a thing about this several years ago, and I said it is possible. You know, let, let's 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 even let's indulge the conspiracy theories for for a moment. It is possible that, you know, Nancy Pelosi and, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer and whatever, Josh Sugarman, are all, you know, part of some enormous conspiracy where they want to take all Americans' guns as part of ushering in a communist dictatorship. It's not possible that the however many tens of millions of Americans who support gun control more gun control than America has now are all part of are all secret communists who want to usher, usher in a dictatorship. You sure. know, even if yeah. the people at the top of these movements are the people, the vast the people you will meet online and in the streets and at your job are honest, mostly honest people who really believe something different to you. And on the other side, the same thing. It is possible that you know. Republican politicians and, you know, Donald Trump and Rand Paul and Wayne LaPierre are all, you know, basically have no interest other than profiting off gun sales and laugh at the, you know, the, the US homicide rate and just want to see as many people die as possible while we sell guns and ammo. <laughs> but that's not true of, certainly not true of me. It's not true of, <laughs> you know, your friend with the concealed carry permit and, you know, the guy who deer hunts in your office, it is not true of the 70, 80 million American gun owners, overwhelmingly. Mm -hmm. It's not true of the 5 million members of the NRA. Mm -hmm. You know, these people genuinely believe something that you find incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. But may, rather than assuming they're idiots, try and understand what why they believe something that you find incomprehensible basically mm -hmm. on both mm -hmm. sides sure um hmm. just maybe you'll reach a point where you can say okay i still disagree about this and this but can we agree on this mm -hmm. you might actually find that there are things that would be helpful on both sides that that people could agree on mm -hmm. but it won't it will never happen if you start by assuming that the other side are basically, you know, evil monsters who want to take away your rights or want to kill your kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems like a, a good place to um, wrap things up, maybe. Um, real quick, aside from your uh, new beliefs themselves, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? more than anything else i think this confirmed something that i kind of suspected already 
but mm -hmm. uh, and moving to the US overall. Uh, my, my changing opinion on guns was one of several things that I changed my mind on um, during the process, as it were, of moving and settling in the US. Mm -hmm. I, I learned to be very suspicious or very skeptical of appeals to common sense and mm. what is obvious, let's mm -hmm. put it that way, mm -hmm. because I learned that a tremendous amount of common sense is actually uh, just cultural. Common mm -hmm. sense is not the same in Britain and America and mm -hmm. Germany and Scandinavia and India or the Islamic world. I mean, that, mm -hmm. that sort of seems obvious when you yeah. actually think about it, but most, most people have not lived in more than one culture. Sure. So they haven't experienced it at the personal kind of level of, of having to change their mind on something that they thought was common sense. Right. So I guess, and I mean, I get really, really annoyed when people respond to any argument with it's obvious mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it, it is obvious for you because you accept this entire range of presuppositions, ideological or cultural. Mm hmm maybe the person you're talking to doesn't. So basically, I always try, I try never myself to reject something just because it doesn't make sense to me automatically, you know, and emotionally. And I try and always kind of dig, dig back to why, okay, you believe something that seems completely crazy to me. Why? Can you explain <laughs> it? You know, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, whatever it is, um, whatever it is, I am a. Right, we could do a whole nother session, but I am, I am really <laughs> not a big fan of the um, ideological uh, barrier building, safeguarding. Mm -hmm. Deplat. I was trying to avoid the deplatforming word because it would just immediately <laughs> get you know sort of political. But basically, <laughs> I, I think in a society as diverse as. Um, the modern West and especially the modern USA, I never basically say something is out of bounds mm -hmm. other, other than basically I am never going to unfriend you or block you on social media. I'm never going to say you're a terrible person for the ideas you're espousing. Mm -hmm. At least not, not, not right away. Not until I actually know you and actually understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, I might block you for how you say it. I mean, if you basically, I'm much more willing to talk to someone with completely insane ideas who's trying to trying to convince me of them rationally and calmly than someone who's taking a completely mainstream political platform sort of position, say, we need more gun control and calling everyone who opposes them a murderer who wants to bathe in the blood of children <laughs> or whatever, or just losing their temper and shouting obscenities. I... You know, I, I just I think in a society as radically diverse as ours, we kind of actually have to have to say I'm not going to rely on my instincts about common sense or what feels icky to me. Um, I'm going to try and actually listen to people and try and use some kind of reason or appeal <laughs> to mutually accepted authority and discuss things and find out what someone actually thinks rather than reacting to the statement they made, even when it seems insane.
Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if there, I mean, like I said, I think I already leaned this way, but if there is one thing that I, that was really cemented in, uh, for me in being kind of someone with a foot in two different cultures, it's that there's no such thing as common sense and nothing that's obvious. Nothing mm -hmm. that's self-evident, obviously true. We can dismiss that idea out of hand because it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the recurring themes I found on this show, we're 21 episodes in now. Um, one, of the, one of the recurring themes I've just come across is just how much easier moving around geographically makes it easier, makes it to change your mind, right? Because mm -hmm. you're jumping from culture to culture and you, you know, you don't have the, this closed system of here's what I believe. Here's what my culture is saying back to me. Here's what I'm saying back to my culture. Right. You know, you, you're getting these <laughs> different ideas from different places. I mean, it's, a, it's an old cliche travel broadens the mind, but sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, but I do think, there is something about moving to another culture, not just kind of moving through it, you know, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. when you actually spend years in a different culture from the one you grew up in. And I mean, obviously, that can be within the same nation, particularly in a country as huge and diverse as the US. Yeah. Um, I remember hearing once someone say that we need a student exchange program, not internationally, but just within the US from <laughs> between these different areas of the US so that we actually understand each other. Um, I don't know. I thought that was an interesting thought. Um, three final questions that I, I try to ask all my guests. Um, try to poke at these questions of ontology, epistemology. How do we know truth? How do we know ourselves? Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're about to get deep for like five minutes here. Um, first of all, Ian, what what is identity? How do you know your identity? Does everyone have an identity? What do you think? Yeah, I am. I'm not the person to ask that question. I, <laughs> I, it was something I really struggled with, uh, honestly, as kind of in my late, through my late teens and uh right after college um i felt like i've always been kind of defiantly myself um i i did not fit in in high school to put it mildly um mm. and I, that ended up kind of almost being a uh, you know i i got through high school but i became very very defensive i i didn't abandoned my identity as I perceived it, but I became very withdrawn into myself and defensive. Um, and I, well, I mean, I'm, for me, I had a period um, in um, not all that, a year or so, less than a year after I graduated, I spent some time in, um, Labrie Fellowship in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I was thinking about then was identity. And I, to me, and I realized this is, you know, be meaningless to many people. I eventually had to come back to the fact that, that God created me and that God created me, that the aspects of my personality that are unique 
I had to be convinced that God actually made me the way I am, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah, uh, that seems kind of shallow in one sense and really deep in another. (laughs) Um, Because I think I was always afraid that my personality was going to be crushed or my identity crushed by by God or by other people. Um, Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I can definitely... um... Uh, see the argument and I you know obviously I come down as sympathetic to it that if your consciousness was not created for a purpose then identity is either non-existence non-existent or meaningless Um, you know if there is if there is no higher intelligence no higher being creating what we think of as the mind for a, for a specific purpose, then well, what even is I mean, the mind? There's the right? old question of why should you believe your mind? Yeah, and exactly. I've never, I've never found an answer to that, other than God. Honestly, <laughs> right. um, you know, I I just I guess I find the sort of uh, radical postmodern epistemologies just incredibly uh, nihilistic in the end. I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, yeah. Why, why should you, if you can't trust all of the input into your mind, I mean, why, why believe, why believe anything? What, why, why anything? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Second, what is human nature? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all different deep down? Are we all blank slates? What do you think? Um, I mean, I'm a theologically conservative Christian. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I like, I I always say that, I always say theologically conservative because I think (laughs) this is one way, one one way I'm different from many American conservatives. I don't believe that being theologically conservative dictates being politically conservative. Sure. Uh, I personally lean that way, but I do not believe that, you know, it's it's literally impossible to actually believe what God said <laughs> and, and, and vote, you know, non-conservative. Um, right. And ob- obviously, <laughs> I would agree with you on that. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I believe humans are made in the image of God. I don't believe we're a complete blank slate. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also think our nature is not what it's supposed to be. Um, I'm, <laughs> I studied history. That's my academic background. Um, <laughs> That'll uh, leave anyone cynical about human nature. Uh, undergraduate <laughs> and some grad school. And yes, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think honestly, uh, when it comes to sort of uh, social and political ideology is one of the biggest divides I draw. And it does, it doesn't correspond strictly necessarily with, you know, kind of right or left, actually, uh, certainly outside the US, is whether you actually believe that humans are, uh, humans and human society are perfectible or not. Mm. Or in theological terms, do you believe in the full? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, yeah, it doesn't map onto political. There are plenty of um, right libertarians who don't really believe, who believe that humans are perfectable in the end <laughs> um, and I, I disagree with them as 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 much as I disagree with my progressive friends 
Mm. Uh, I, I mean, I think whenever you're looking at anything to do with humans, you have to assume that they won't be able to do it to do it perfectly and that it will be bent by greed, hatred, and selfishness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, what is truth? How do you know truth? How do you know when you found truth? Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I believe in truth. Let's put it that way. I'm mm-hmm. very, very firm on the idea that truth does exist. Um, and I do not think that we can know it absolutely. I think only God can know it absolutely. But I do think we can know it meaningfully, hmm. uh, you know, enough to make decisions, um, enough to have faith, hmm. enough to uh, make decisions about what we think the nature of the universe is. Yeah, I uh, the background to my my faith is um, the works of uh, Francis Schaeffer and Labrie Fellowship. Um, I don't know if you if you know Schaeffer. I don't know if yeah. I mean, I well, um, he was I come a, from a Presbyterian background, so a, yeah, theologian, writer, evangelist, um, most active in the sixties and seventies, but. He was one of the first uh, kind of conservative theologians to really engage with uh, the, the counterculture then in mm. the 60s and 70s, rather than kind of reacting in by throwing up hands in horror and going, what's happening to the kids? They've all gone mad. <laughs> um, Schaefer was like, how about you sit down and talk to them? Um, <laughs> um, which, yeah, um, you can probably tell that influence on, on me from some of the things mm. I've said. Um, but, you know, he, he, he liked to use the word true truth, um, the phrase true truth, um, and talking about how we, we can know and talking about how we, we can't... I think there's this false dichotomy made in a lot of kind of modern post postmodern perhaps thinking that if we can't know absolute truth therefore we can't know truth yeah end of mm-hmm. story there is no access to truth if if truth exists which it probably doesn't it's out there and completely inaccessible to us <laughs> um which i mean i'm like you know well yeah lie down and die um <laughs> i guess i'm a, a bear of little brain and i just i just don't i just don't get how you can live with doubting everything all the time but mm-hmm. Schaefer talked about I can't remember the phrase but adequate truth I mean th- that is what the world actually works on is adequate truth you know no we don't we don't know absolutely that the world will be there when we open our eyes in the morning but mm-hmm. we assume enough to open them and to you know put our feet out of the bed mm-hmm. yeah I mean we assume the floor will still be there when we get out of bed and that we won't suddenly plunge into an endless chasm that has just opened in our bedroom um, you know, and there's no absolute reason that couldn't happen, I guess. But, you know, we don't live that way. But somehow people make a, a separation between like philosophical and uh, religious truth and the truth that they live all their lives with. Hmm. Um, I think we can know enough. We can have enough access to the truth to decide what we believe. Hmm put it that way um i, I mean that's a really 
at the end of the day, everything is a faith decision mm-hmm. in the sense that you eventually have to take a leap of faith. You can't mm-hmm. prove anything 100% absolutely in some sort of scientific, quote, absolute mathematical way. You mm-hmm. have to choose what you believe. But I do think that we can uh, use our perceptions, use logic, use reason to decide that this seems more likely to be true than the other. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies to, you know, the decisions we take every day and it decides to what it, it applies to you know, our big picture views about human society and politics or something. And it applies to what we believe about God, the universe and everything. Hmm. And, and I realize that I, I know enough about philosophy to realize how shallow that is compared <laughs> to, you know, those who have actually spent years thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But I also know that I have the kind of mind that if I think too much about it, I'll probably end up just chasing down endless philosophical rabbit holes and, <laughs> and go mad. Uh, so I decided I have adequate, uh, <laughs> adequate proof and truth for what I have decided. And I do, I do re-examine it. I'm not saying I've never examined what I believe in, you know, 30 years. Um, but uh, I do also believe that that doubt isn't a virtue in and of itself, if that makes sense. Um, hmm. um, or to quote, which one was it? Either Chesterton or Lewis. That the, pur- <laughs> the purpose of opening your mind, like 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 opening your mouth, is to close it again on something solid. <laughs> that was Chesterton. I'm I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it sounds. But like yeah, it. that's it's a very good quote. It's a very good quote. All right. Well, thank you so much for um, coming on the show, Ian. It has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, do you have anything you want to plug before you go? Twitter or anything else? Wow. Um, I mean, I I would love to be have more of my own stuff out there than I do. Um, <laughs> feel free to friend me on Facebook. That's my main place where I occasionally... Every now and again, I write something I think that was actually worth writing and uh, <laughs> on politics or history or social whatever. Um, and, uh, listen to me if you happen to be in the Des Moines area. Listen to Mike. Uh, yes, Faith Works Live on 99.3 FM, The Truth. Uh, if you're in kind of central Iowa, Des Moines. Um, or you can find that on Facebook. Uh, it's... Uh, Facebook lived every every day and then archived on the 99.3 FM the truth Facebook page so actually you can find it even if you're not in you know central Iowa <laughs> very cool all right well this has been changed my mind with Luke T Harrington I'm Luke T Harrington you can find me on Twitter at Luke T Harrington or at my website LukeTHarrington.com. I'll see you next time The gun debate, I would say more than any other political debate, is the one that's least about actual policy. Um, Abortion's a close second, but the, the gun debate is definitely 
up there. Um, so little of the debate I see about guns is about, you know, here, what can we do to reduce harm while ensuring that innocent people have the ability to defend themselves? Um, so much of it is just about jingoistic chest thumping. <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I say that as a criticism of uh, both sides of the debate, like it very, very little of it is serious debate. And most of it is self-congratulation for being the ones who are serious about saving human lives and care about the people who are being harmed by guns or congratulating yourself for being the ones who are standing up for freedom and the right to defend yourself. Um, and that, I mean, that's what I see when I see the gun debate. I don't see people talking seriously about how we deal with the reality of the, this existence of, you know, this sort of instant murder machine that you can carry with you wherever you go. And that's why I really don't have a lot of <laughs> hope for any, any real change in the future. Now, I personally am someone who would shed no tears if all firearms were banned tomorrow. Like, I don't particularly like guns. I don't enjoy shooting them. I have no interest in hunting. I think there are plenty of options for protecting yourself, um, should it come to that. Um, but that being said, um, I think Ian is right that mass shootings are essentially a cultural problem not so much a technological one uh malcolm gladwell uh published an interesting piece in the new yorker about five years ago title of the piece is thresholds of violence in case you want to look it up and i thought he made a pretty convincing case for his thesis which is that mass shootings are maybe best understood in terms of um riot theory was was the example he used um where you know if you've studied riot theory you know it's 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 kind of about the attempt to wrap your mind around how a group of people can suddenly become violent and destructive um when most of the people in the group are generally normal <laughs> upstanding citizens and the idea is that every individual has a certain threshold of what they need to see before they'll engage in a certain act. Um, so, you know, if you have a crowd of like a thousand people, you know, maybe it'll take something really small to set the first guy off and make him, you know, throw a brick through a window. Like, I don't know, maybe there's a speaker that, um, is saying something he doesn't like and he throws a brick through the window. And then maybe there's one other guy um, in the crowd who is, you know, all he needs to see is one guy throwing a brick through a window before he starts like kicking parking meters or whatever. Um, and then, you know, there's maybe a couple more people in the crowd that if they see two guys acting violently, that's all it takes for them. And pretty soon you're all the way up to the people who are just waiting until like a hundred people are acting violently before they'll, uh, start acting violently. I mean, I, I guess if you wanted to put it in crass terms, it's monkey see, monkey do theory, um, which means essentially that the reason we have mass shootings is because 
mass shootings are a thing, if that makes sense. Um, and I know maybe that sounds like a tautology, <laughs> like we have mass shootings because we have mass shootings, but no, we have people who are engaging in mass shootings now are doing so because these high profile cases have etched mass shootings as this thing that happens in the minds of the public. And if you're mad at the world and you hate yourself and you hate other people and you just want to end it all and go out with a bang, like there's this act that has been clearly defined by both um, criminals and by the media as like, this is what you do. And that's why, I mean, that's a big part of the reason we have so many mass shootings. I think if we really want to wrestle with this phenomenon of mass shootings, what we really need to ask ourselves is why we have so many alienated people who look at these mass shootings and say, yeah, that sounds like a good option, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think I've said this before on the show, but I, I the more I think about this sort of thing, the more convicted I am that the thing that keeps communities together, that keeps states and countries and whatever together is shared values. Um, and somehow we've kind of reached this point where the only place people get their values is politics. And politics is a really stupid place to get your values <laughs> which brings me back to the nature of the gun debate um political values as it happens tend to be very shallow very surface very vapid sorts of values um and the other thing about politics of course is that politics always has a loser so, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm not connecting the dots all that well here, um, but I do, I think the, the long and short of it is that without meaningful shared values, there's nothing connecting people to their communities. Without people being connected to their communities, you have an awful lot of isolated people. Um, and obviously, the average isolated person is not going to shoot up a mall or whatever, but all it takes is... A handful of outliers in this enormous group of isolated people. For whatever it's worth, um, I resisted uh, doing this show for a long time. Like I've had this idea in my head for this podcast for a long time, and I've had a lot of people who pushed me to do it. Um, but I did resist it for a while because I didn't want it to be a sort of bubble-headed, let's all join hands and sing kumbaya kind of show, you know, like we all have our differences, but we're all deep down, we're all the same, let's just get together, because that's not a real solution. Like, pretending that we're unified when we're not cannot bring about unity. <laughs> what brings people together has to be shared values, and the problem with that is that you can't force values on people, right? If you force a value on someone, it's not a value. A value has to come from within. This country is 
exceptionally broken in many ways. And I'm I'm not a both sides are baddest. I don't think that every person in America is equally broken and equally evil, but the country is deeply and profoundly broken. And there's no clear solution. And the goal of this podcast was never to find a solution. It's always been, let's sit here with the problem. Let's feel the pain. Let's try to understand just how thoroughly broken things are. And that's it. You know, I don't, I don't have, there's no gospel at the end of the sermon. It's just, it's just like, stop trying to fix things before you even have begun to fathom how broken they are. And, you know, that's it for this week. Um, if you're enjoying the show, if you appreciate what I'm doing, um, there are a few things you can do to help. You can leave a review and a rating on iTunes. I promised you anyone who left me a review would get it read live on the air and I would make you internet famous. There's a new review up over at iTunes from someone named Sparky777. So here's what Sparky has to say. He says, Luke T. Harrington has created the most interesting podcast I have stumbled onto in a long time. He seeks out people who have done a complete 180 in a core belief. His non-judgmental but unapologetically probing interview style digs into the root causes for why each guest believe XYZ and what caused them to shift to believing LMNOP. This podcast is a refreshing break from the trend toward polarizing agree or disagree attitudes so prevalent in our world today. Open your mind, launch this podcast, and you'll find yourself thinking more deeply about your own beliefs and what has caused you to change your mind or not. So thanks there, Sparky. Um, I said he, I guess it could, could be a woman as well. Um, whoever you are, Sparky, I appreciate your support. Um, you too can help the internet learn about me by leaving a review at iTunes. Currently sitting at four reviews, seven ratings, not a whole lot, but each one helps. So uh, get on there and do that. If you want to support me financially, there is a Ko-Fi up for me. Um, and Ko-Fi is like Patreon without all the baggage, basically. You can just throw me three bucks whenever you want, which is the price of a coffee, hence the name. It's ko-fi, ko-fi.com slash, slash change my mind. Um, so you can do that. You can pre-order my book. Um, my book is still coming in August. It is a humor book called Murder Bears, Moonshine, and Mayhem, Strange Stories from the Bible to Leave You Amused, Be Mused, and Hopefully Informed. You can pre-order that on Amazon. It will be out August 25th. Um, I'm pretty excited about that book. It's going to be my big five publisher debut. Got a really positive review in Publishers Weekly. Um, so we're off to a good start. Help support me. Give it a pre-order. Um, one other thing you can check out I've been doing is at projectconarrative.com, writing a novel live on the internet with my good friend, award-winning, best-selling author, KB Hoyle. She's great. Um, so check that out. I want to thank Ian for coming on the show. Ian, you're a great guy. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciated your insight. I want to thank 
Raven Creek Social Club for hosting the podcast. Uh, please check out their other podcasts, um, Faith and Other Oddities and The Commentarians. And I want to thank you for listening to Change My Mind. And please don't be afraid to change your mind.